And I want you to hear the word of God very clearly. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. A voice of one is calling out. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Remove the obstacles. Make straight and smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged places a broad valley. And the glory and majesty and splendor of the Lord will be revealed, and all humanity shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Most certainly, all the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And all of God's people said to that, amen. amen. And now, you may be seated. The title of my message today is a question. It's a rhetorical question. Well, at least I intend it as a rhetorical question. And here's the question. Is the Bible uniquely true or not? Because it's either uniquely true or it's not. Uniqueness is, well, it's a unique word. In fact, if you know your English well, you know there's never to be an adjective for unique. You don't say, that person is very unique. If they're unique, they don't need the adjective very. So just a reminder, I always have to catch myself when I'm using the word unique. You have to put a word before that with an and and then say unique. Don't put an adjective with unique. And, that's, and why I'm saying that to you is that it applies to, of course, God, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and his written communication to us, which we often call his special revelation, his written communication, without which we would not know a single thing for sure about God. We wouldn't know a thing about God or this world, or truth for that matter in a general sense. That's pretty deep for 9 o'clock in the morning, but hang on, hang on. Unique Here's what unique means, being the one, the only one of its kind. It's an original. It's unique. Well, you're not supposed to use the word unique to describe unique, but unique in its design. It is being without or like any equal. There's many passages that I could share today that relate to this subject. But I will begin with a certain section that I'll be touching on a little bit here today. Uh, this is not an exegetical expository message. I'm sorry if you came expecting that today, so let me get that out of the way right away. This is a, this is a message that is, in essence, an apologetical message to explore some of the evidences for the Bible that are outside the Bible. And you'll understand why I'm doing this in just a moment. Second Peter chapter 1 is filled with amazing verses. You can read it on your own. Read the whole chapter, but not right now, if you'll just be willing to. 
go with the flow here. But Peter kind of ends that section in a crescendo when he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the inspiration and uniqueness of the Scripture. And then there's this, Acts 1-3. Now remember, Acts is an historical book. It is not a book so much of doctrine. The epistles are really the doctrinal statement on what happened in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Some people interpret the epistles through the view of the Gospels and Acts, and I would suggest to you that that's a mistake. That's an interpretive mistake. We need to understand the Gospels and Acts as historical books through what Paul brought to us through the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, Peter and, and John in the New Testament, in the, in the epistles. Acts 1-3, to these men, meaning the writers of, of Scripture, actually the apostles, the witnesses, they said, to these men he also showed himself, meaning Jesus, after his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross, by a series of, and I love this phrase, many infallible proofs and unquestionable demonstrations appearing to them over a period of 40 days and talking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. I love the word infallible. When I think about the scripture, I like the word infallible better than inerrant. You know why? Because infallible means it's not only without error, but it can never be wrong. If it's infallible, it can never be wrong. That is, I think, the best word, in my humble opinion, in the English language to describe the uniqueness of the Bible. Now, throughout the centuries, scholars, would-be scholars, and kitchen philosophers, you know, all of us that sit around the table and sometimes pontificate about things that, you know, whatever, all of these categories and even beyond have sought to undermine the credibility of the Bible. Why? Because if the Bible is true, if the Bible is true, then it has consequences. If the Bible in anything it affirms is incorrect, we cannot claim that it is the unique book of books embodying the very words of God. Do you understand the consequences of this? And many of us in the body of Christ, whatever denomination or no denomination that you might be a part of, if you're born again, many of us are guilty of circular reasoning with the Bible. We go to our friends and we say, well, the Word of God says, and they go, what? The Word of God? What do you mean the Word of God? Are you talking about the Bible? I mean, that, this is just a book. In their minds, whether they say it or not, they think it's a book of fables. They think it's not relevant. They think it's just written by men period, has nothing to do with God. And so circular reasoning would be to say, I believe the word of God because it says it's the word of God. Hallelujah. <laughs> you ever heard a preacher do, uh, nothing against, I love, I'm a preacher, so I can make fun of other preachers, you know. It's the old thing, like if you're, if you're a white, you can make fun of whites, and on and on it goes, right, you know, you know what I'm saying? 
If you say that you believe in the word of God because the word of God said it's the word of God, hallelujah, your brothers and sisters, and you're around and in the kitchen, and you're worshiping the Lord, and I'm saying that very sincerely. But if you're talking about that with someone who does not believe in the word of God, does not believe maybe even in God's existence, might not even believe the truth is absolute at all. It's all relative. It's what, whatever goes. That's our culture today, isn't it? I would say that probably 90 to 95% of your friends that don't know Christ as their Savior probably live in that world. And you're going to tell them that the Word of God is the Word of God because it says the Word of God? Ain't going to fly. I'm sorry, it's not going to fly. I call this ships passing in the night syndrome. You see somebody out in the ocean and they're drowning and you approach them that way, you're going to pass right by them and they're going to drown. That's pretty serious for me to say, isn't it? It's pretty intense. Tim, take it easy. What did you have this morning? I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> I do take something else, but I won't tell you what it is. It's legal. Don't worry. Um, so if it is true that your friends are assuming that the Bible is just a book written by men full of fables and non-believable events and so-called miracles... How do you meet them where they are? How do you connect with them in such a way that they will listen to a credible presentation of the glorious, true, and unique gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you do that? And how do you sincerely address their questions? Are you even having a conversation where you're allowing for them to have their questions brought up? The big questions of life that you might get to, not right away, but in a conversation as you get to know, you know, where does life come from? Why am I here? How do I discover the truth for life? Now, you might say, well, I'm now 74, and I, I kind of, I don't ask those questions anymore. I'm good. By the way, some of your friends who are not believers are saying the same thing, and they need this information. They need the truth, or they will spend eternity separated from God. You see the consequences of all this. This is not a light subject. No subject from the scripture is light. But today, we're going to explore for a few minutes why Peter wrote that the Bible is true and unique. And, and why it is so heart attack critical. Heart attack critical. For you and me, our families, and our friends. So here we go. That was just the introduction. While there are many categories of extra-biblical proof, and when I say extra-biblical, I mean outside the Bible. While there are many categories of extra-biblical proof, we're going to look at three today, briefly. Two will be objective, and one will be subjective. We're going to look at the historicity of the Bible. That is, how did we get the Bible? We're going to look at the accuracy of the Bible, and I'm only going to touch on a few. There are un an unbelievable list of evidences for the accuracy of the Bible. And then we're going to look at the efficacy of the Bible, which would be, how does it work out in our lives? So first we start with historicity. How do we get the Bible? Now, how many books do we have in the Bible? Good, good, good. How many Old Testament? There are crickets here, folks. How many in the Old Testament? How many books? 39. How many in the New Testament? Well, I didn't hear you. Be bold. 27. Written over 1,600 years. Did you get that? 1,600 years. 
We think 60 years is a lot. 1,600 years. Moses began to write around 1400 B.C. Revelation was written, as far as we know, around 60 A.D. 60 generations. 60. 60 generations. 40 authors. Every walk of life. Moses, a political leader. Peter, a fisherman. Where's Chuck today? Chuck, who usually is back there on the table, one of the great fishermen of all time in Naples. He's now, how, many, how many love to fish? Any, any fisher people out there? Fisher people. I can't call them fishermen, right? Yeah, Peter was a professional fisherman. That was his livelihood. And he was a pretty smart dude, by the way. He went to Hebrew school and the whole thing, right? Sometimes we demean Peter like, well, he didn't have any credentials like Paul did. But you know what? It turns out that God used him just as prolifically as he did Paul. So there's Peter. Amos, a farmer, a sheep herder. Joshua, a military leader. Nehemiah, a cabinet member, a cupbearer in the government. Daniel, the prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, an IRS agent. <laughs> Paul, a religious philosophical scholar. Oh, you like the way I describe Paul? The Apostle Paul, yeah, he's some kind of religious dude. You know, he wrote the Bible. Who, who cares about Paul? Paul was a religious philosophical scholar. A scholar. Yeah, he was. What's the point of that? I just gave you a quick contrast of some of the writers of Scripture to show how wide the variety of vocations were and how God used everyone and anyone that you could think of to bring us the written revelation of his heart to us. Differing geographical locations and contexts. Three continents the word of God was written on. Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in the dungeon, Daniel in a palace, Paul in a prison, Luke gallivanting. My wife likes to call me a gallivanter. My wife is away this weekend. She's back in New Jersey taking care of her, her mother who sadly broke her hip last week and she had an operation. She's coming through okay. But she's there and she likes to say to me, when, especially when she's not with me, you know, Tim, Take it easy on the gallivanting. <laughs> Mark, no, Mark and Christy and um, Linda. Isn't Linda great on the piano? I, I, what a blessing. Linda, where are you? Is she, did she leave? Is she here? Where is she? Where is she, Linda? Did you leave? You're not listening? Oh, there she is. She's on the front row. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. That's what happens when you look over the crowd. Anyway, so, you know, wh where was I? Oh, ga gallivanting. I was gallivanting. So they knew. I, I, I came in yesterday from uh, Port Lucie, Port St. Lucie, uh, yesterday because I'm a Met fan and I went to the game and I met with a couple of people and I like to gallivant I do I like to gallivant Luke was a gallivanter he traveled he was a doctor he knew why did God have him gallivanting around because God was going to use his gallivanting to give him the rich experience to be able to speak historically about the church in the book of Acts Acts John was in exile. Many of the authors wrote during vigorous warfare. Different times and cultural contexts. Two very different languages with probably, one could argue, the richest expressions and shades of meaning known to human communication. Hebrew and Greek. Why did God choose Hebrew and Greek? Do you know how many shades there are in the Hebrew language for a word that we only have one word for in English? The same thing goes for the Greek. 
When you hear someone get up and say, the Greek says this, or the Greek means this, hopefully that's being done with a motivation to bring encouragement in a shade of meaning, not like the Greek, I like to tell you that I know the Greek and you don't know the Greek. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding the heart of God through the shades of meaning that he chose to communicate to us through the Hebrew and the Greek. F.F. Bruce, one of the great scholars of textual criticism, if you know what that is, doesn't matter if you don't, but just about the Bible, the study of the Bible, he says this, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is a unity which binds the whole thing together, and the whole point of that list that I just gave you is this. If you don't think the Bible is really God's word, you have to at least admit it's quite a miracle that all 40 authors never contradict each other. They comprehensively connect with each other. They're cohesively connected with each other. Uh, just a little side note here, coming off the message. This is free of charge. This is off the side. You know why I'm doing this today? I'm not doing this to express to you what I've learned through the years. and all that. I, I guess that's part of that. You know, that would be a bad motivation. You know why I'm doing this? Because along the way, you may pick up a couple of things that you can share with a friend about the uniqueness of the Bible. And it may actually lead to them coming to know Christ and spending eternity. When we come to the end of this message, I will tell you how my fourth son-in-law, my youngest son-in-law, came to know Christ through a message just like this. So the Bible is comprehensive, cohesive, and this is really important, it is non-contradictory. As I said, this is a miracle in and of itself. One could argue, argue that one of the great proofs of God's hand on every word that all Scripture is, is inspired is that the Bible is uniquely cohesive. No author out of the 40 authors over 1,600 years ever contradicted another author. That is impossible. Do you understand it's impossible? You get two authors in the same language writing on the same subject, and they will inevitably contradict each other. Just two. Check it out. I could stop right here and say amen, and off we go. Some of you are saying, please, it's too much. Get out of here. Let's get out of here. Okay, we're, we're going to move on. So a personal illustration. This is where I sit down on, the, on my, like this stool here. So you see this Bible? Here it is. This Bible belonged to my grandfather. It was dedicated to him in 1977. He was in his 50s, or, or actually his 60s when that happened, and his notes are in this Bible. This was my Bible when I went to Moody Bible Institute. All my notes are in here through the, through the years, since 1983, actually, 1984 or so. And then my daughter, did, without my permission, found my Bible, and she took it without my knowing it, and she went to Moody Bible Institute, and she used this at Moody for her degree, and her notes are in here. And my father has a little signature in here. I have four generations of Christians touching this Bible in my own family. So as you might imagine, it's a little special to me. Ephesians is falling out. I have to always like re reinsert Ephesians. It's kind of like, I don't know why, but that. You know. I had this Bible in my hand when I was struggling with my faith in Christ. My faith in the Christian worldview, for that matter. And, I, and I, one day, uh, ap after being at Moody as a functional agnostic, this is a story perhaps for another time, some of you know about it. As a functional agnostic, I was traveling along to my assignment in ministry. See, I was in charge of a Sunday school, and I was struggling with why I believe what I did. 
Is that wild? Well, it's true. So I had this Bible in my hand, and across from me, there was a young woman, and her name was Melissa. I'll never forget her name because this was uh, one of those experiences that you could never forget. The train was packed. She looked at me, and she saw me reading my Bible. I was reading my Bible because I had an assignment in New Testament survey and Old Testament survey, not because I loved the Word of God. I was so excited about the Word of God. I wasn't. I wasn't even sure it was really true, but I had to do it because it was an assignment, and I was working out my faith, so to speak. And she goes, do you believe in that Bible? And I said, um, well, I'm not really totally sure, but there's a lot of evidences for it. And she said to me in that moment, how can you believe in a book that's full of contradictions? And I said, interesting question, name one. This is on a train packed in Chicago on the L, going out 30 minutes. If you know Chicago, anybody know Chicago? Anybody ever been on the L? Then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Packed train. I said, name one. She goes, well, you know, Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and turn the other cheek. I don't know if you ever heard anybody articulate that particular so-called contradiction. So we had a conversation about it. Here's the conversation. It was very simple, very quick. I said, Melissa, what are you talking about? There's no contradiction there. When the Bible teaches eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that's in the context of a society where there's accountability for doing crimes. That is the power of the magistrate or the person in charge to say, hey, you did something that is illegal and a crime, and now you're going to be held accountable for it. Now, you may not like the euphemism of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? But that is a principle of jurisprudence and accountability. And then when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he was talking about personal relationships. So here's my buddy John Hasek on the front row. Some of you know John. He's a wonderful man of God. He loves the Lord. So if John came up to me, and uh, he heard me speaking, of, and, he, and, he, and just decided to, you know, I just didn't like what you said, and he punches me in the face. I just out of nowhere, just like, John, what? Kind of like the Will Smith thing. I'm, I'm done, and he comes up to me, and he, and he punches me out. I, I'm going, what? why did you do that? He goes, I just felt like it. If John did something as crazy as that, do I have the right to, at that point, the right, legally, to punch him back? The answer is no. I might do that, and we might get into a brawl, and John would beat me up, and that would be the end of it. However, if John punches me in the face, I am supposed to get someone else in authority to bring accountability to him. That's turning the other cheek. Now, if you think I'm going to turn my face around and say, just give it to me again, bro, because Jesus said turn the other cheek. Give it to me, baby. Absolutely not. The principle is what's behind those statements. And Melissa said, I didn't use John Hasek, I didn't know him at that time, but I used that example, and Melissa said, oh, wow, never thought of it that way. And I said, Melissa, I would challenge you to give me one contradiction in the scripture that does not have a plausible explanation that anybody and their brother would agree with. She goes, wow. And then that led on to further conversations all the way to the great, that great axiom that many of you have used. Either Jesus is... A lunatic, or a legend, or a liar, or he's God, Lord, right? The quad, we, we call that the quadruple L. He's either a lunatic, or a liar, or a legend, or he is Lord. There's no other option because of who he said he was. Now, that was Melissa. Just a little personal illustration. It came right out of this Bible experience. 
Now, we've talked a little bit about the continuity of the scripture. I want to touch briefly here on the canon. What does canon mean? Canon means read, R-E-E-D, which is a measuring rod, which is another word for that is a standard. The key here is that, and this is important for you to hear, the key here is that the early church did not make up the canon. Then you go, oh, I like that one. I like that one. I like that guy. I'm going to make that the Bible. That's what people think happened. It didn't happen that way. See, the, the church did not make up the canon, but rather recognized the books, the writings that passed the litmus, te- the litmus tests of inspiration. Do you know what the litmus tests of inspiration are? Some of you might know them already. I have a bunch of A's for you now. I like to alliterate. Here they are. Number one. Was it authoritative? Was it demonstrably from the hand of God as far as the early church could tell? Number two, was it apostolic? Did it have apostolic authority? Did an apostle write it? Now, please understand, as I'm giving you this list, I'm not saying this proves the Bible. I'm giving you an understanding of how the canon came together, why we have the 66 books that we have and not 67 or 69 or 45 or whatever. Is it authentic? Number three, the church fathers had a policy. Any doubt, throw it out. Any doubt, throw it out. That's why evangelicals do not have the Apocrypha tied into their Bible. We don't believe in the Apocrypha, the Gospel of Thomas and Fred and Harry. I'm I'm sorry to tell you that those books that are in the Catholic Bible, for instance, are not considered to be the standardized canon. And there's a reason They would throw it out if they saw any contradictions, any mythical or fable-like language. Analogous to this today would be the Book of Mormon, the New World Translation, the Quran, the Bhagavad These are all books that claim inspiration, but internally have contradictions and things that are not correct in relationship to known history. Not the Bible. Not the Bible. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm speaking the truth about the Bible. It is unique. Was it animated? That's another litmus test. Was it alive and life-transforming? That's a big thing, right? Does the Bible actually have an impact on people and bring change through the power of the Holy Spirit? The answer is? Okay, just checking if you were listening. Was it affirmed? Was it received, collected, copied, read, and utilized? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. And so I've already talked about the Apocrypha, but um, what you need to know is that by 393 AD, the 66 books were firmly established and fully affirmed. No question, it was over. The Bible that you have in your phone or translations or the one that you hold on to that you have at your house or the one that has dust on the shelf. Remember that one? You know, the Bible that has dust on the shelf because, you know, I don't know. You know, I know the Bible. I don't have to read it anymore. Sorry for being a little bit facetious, but I've been around a long time as a Christian I'm guilty of it myself. So you know that Bible that you have? You know, get rid of the dust. That Bible was established firmly in its original manuscripts in 393 A.D. That's a long time that the Bible's been around. How about the accuracy? Just a couple more minutes here to describe a couple of things that are amazing about the Bible. How about the Bibliolog... Bibli- Bibli- I can't even say it. The Bibliolog... I can't, I can't say it. I'm not going to say it. The Bibliography 
medical test. I got it out. <laughs> so Josh McDowell says this. Josh McDowell says this. The historical reliability of the scriptures should be tested by the same criteria of all historical documents, meaning the documents of antiquity. It's a very important statement to make because now we talk about what we call the quantity test. There, did you know that there are hundreds of Old Testament manuscripts, thousands of New Testament manuscripts that are the basis of what scholars have used to construct the true renderings of the original writings. Why is this important? Because we don't have the original autographs. They were burned in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. And there are some scholars who believe, believing scholars, I should say, who believe that one of the reasons why God, in his sovereignty, allowed the original autographs to be burned is that perhaps we as humans and our tendency would maybe worship those documents you hear what I'm saying? It's only plausible. I'm not saying it's fact. But what would happen if we had those original documents? You see what happens when people see relics and they think it's the toe of St. Peter or the finger of Jesus or something like that, and then people have been, had tended to give veneration and worship them. Maybe God was protecting us from doing that. Just a thought. But because of established literary protocols in secular context, we have complete assurance that what we read today are legitimate translations. Truly, the intention of the authors, as long as the translation is legitimate. Sir Frederick Kenyon, I won't try a British accent, but imagine me now as I, as I quote this, as, that it's a British accent. I will not do a British accent. I can't do a Brit. Mark and Christy can do British accents. The McVeigh girls can do British accents, but I can't. And so, here's what he said, though. He's one of the foremost authorities in New Testament textual criticism, and he says this. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially in this case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in one way or another by these ancient authorities. I could not read that again if I tried. And you probably are going, I, what did he say? I, I, I'm saying to you, did you hear the essence of what he said? He's saying that the evidence is so strong that even from a secular perspective, the Bible must be considered unique amongst all books that claim inspiration or something from God in antiquity. I heard one person say amen. Did anybody say an amen to that? I mean, does that make you feel a little bit better? Some of you saying, I didn't, thank you, Mark. I didn't see, you know, I, I understand that some of you are going, you know what, I don't need that. I don't need this stuff. I, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this really for you. I am, I am doing this for you. I hope you like it. I, I don't know, I don't you know. But I'm just saying, I'm doing it so that you have an idea and a solid sense of assurance and maybe a few ideas that you can share with your friends this week. Ah, oh, you know, I heard this message this guy was talking about. He said this, what do you think about that? Could be a ramp into their being more open to the gospel. A couple more examples. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut out a little bit here. But um, 
let me go, let me go to a, 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 the archaeology test. You know, archaeologists and those that are part of that whole thing, you know, the, the people like, uh, uh, what was that movie series uh, with... Uh, bum, 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 bum. Indiana Jones, right. So the Indiana Jones crowd, they've been mocking the Bible for decades upon decades. Until, lo and behold, there's a discovery. It's like, ooh, got to take that back. Let me give you an example. Have you ever heard of the city AI? It's spelled AI, and it's pronounced AI. Anybody know what AI is? AI is the city that the Israelites did not conquer because there was sin in the camp. Anybody ever heard a message? Probably Pastor Hayes or Pastor John has done a message on, there's sin in the camp. You ever hear that phrase? That's from that story because there was a guy that decided to disobey God, hide a couple of idols, and because, idols, because he did that, Israel lost the battle to AI. And you go, come on, God, one guy? That's how serious sin is unconfessed in the body of Christ. Do you really think that if there's a member of a church that is living a duplicitous life, that's truly a member of that church, I mean, a member of that church, fully you know, professing Christ, and, and, and they're hiding sin, do you think that God is like gonna wink at that? It turns out that in the Old Testament, God brought consequence to the entire nation of Israel because one man was sinning and not repenting. Now, that story is a really cool story, isn't it? We could do a whole message on that. However, archaeologists like the Indiana Jones crowd, they've been mock they were mocking this until in the late 1940s, lo and behold, AI was discovered. Before that, we had no indication that AI was discovered. And lo and behold, what a shock. The Bible was right. Why am I being a little bit intense and sarcastic? Because I see so many people who throw the Bible out without knowing the amazing uniqueness of this Bible. Uh-oh, I used the adjective. The amazing nature of the Bible and the uniqueness of the Bible. How about the Hittites? You know about the Hittites and the Jebusites and the termites and all the other... Uh, <laughs> you know that for many, many years, the, the, the Hittites were seen to be a people that didn't exist until, shock and surprise, archaeologists dis discovered the people called the Hittites. And over and over and over again, this is happening. It's happening now. Look it up. It's amazing. Even now, there are discoveries that are coming about the Scripture that are just, once again, supporting the truth that it is true and unique. How about the prophecy test? 300 references to the Messiah fulfilled by Jesus. Did you know that? 300 now, there was a book written a number of years ago called The, 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 uh, uh, the Passover Plot. It was by a, a Jewish atheist who said that Jesus actually did this on purpose. He actually knew what the prophecies were, and he coordinated his life in such a way that he was able to fulfill all 300. And the response to that by critics was, if Jesus was, was able to do that, he deserved an Oscar, an Emmy, and every other award known to man. Because it would have been impossible for him to do that on his own in those three years of his ministry. You see, the prophecy test is something that the apostles referred to all the time as an evidence, along with, of course, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, let's just touch briefly on what I call the efficacy. The efficacy. Does it work? First of all, 
all those who received this Bible as God's love letter and tested it as a blueprint for all of life have never found it to be wanting, dissatisfying, or disappointing. I'm sure that's the testimony of most of you out here today. That when you really apply the Bible, when you really actually embrace it, when you take it in as a love letter and not just a rule, rules and regulations, another that's not what the Bible is. They're principles to live by. They're, it's, it's, the, it's the pathway to freedom in this life. When you see the Bible that way, you cannot help but embrace it. You'll never be disappointed. You see, it's wise application leads to healthier marriages, lower divorce rates, protection against sexual disease, emotional trauma resulting from sexual experimentation outside of God's boundaries and his loving design, healthier families with children successfully raised, not perfectly, but prepared for all the challenges of life, healthier financial lives, the blessing of tithing, and living on the 90% that God gives us to honor him with wisdom and compassion after our needs are taken, care, taken care of. That was a mouthful, by the way, on finances. How about healthy spirituality, assurance of salvation in this life and the life to come, a relationship with the living God? This all comes from the revelation of the Bible that we then take as a ramp into the living God. A ramp into the living God. You know, evangelicals are oftentimes accused of being idolaters of the Bible, bibliolaters. Sometimes they say, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But without the Bible, we would not know who God is. We wouldn't know a thing about what it was to have a relationship with him. So today we've looked briefly at just a few evidence supporting the uniqueness of the Bible. We've only scratched the surface. And yes, to trust that the Bible is true and unique is a step of faith, admittedly, but such a step is based on irrefutable, reasonable evidences. In contrast, to reject the Bible is also a step of faith based on nothing but subjective speculation and misplaced mocking, often disingenuous and baseless. You see, one who looks at the evidence with honesty and objectivity cannot say, I can't believe the Bible. I can't believe that. They can't, see, if you're looking objectively at it, rather they're forced to say, I won't believe the Bible. Oh yeah, I know you got all those evidences and it makes sense, but I will not. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen to me what I'm saying right now. It is a matter of the will of a person who understands the truth and the uniqueness of the Bible. This is serious stuff. The Bible has survived endless attacks throughout history. It's the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, dissected, disputed, debated, destroyed, and outlawed book of all time. Yet, it is still, somehow, the best-selling book and read the most of any book in history. How is that possible? Remember the philosopher Voltaire? Remember that guy? Not who you would put into the category of Christianity, right? He mocked it. He said within 100 years, at the end of his life, he said within 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. But it turns out, ironically, that when Voltaire died, shortly after that, his home became the headquarters for the French Bible Society. <laughs> the irony, in case you don't think that God has a little sarcasm in him, a little satire, read the Old Testament and remember that illustration. I told you I would close today 
with a, a short story about my son-in-law, Ryan. Ryan was, um, in, his, in his early teens, he was uh, mentored by one of the top leaders in the Masons. I mean, the deep Masons. I mean, the 33rd degree. And if you know anything about Masonry in the 33rd degree, it's not Christian. Let's put it that way. It's antithetical to it. He was mentored by one of the top in the world. If I mention his name, you go, what? His father, his stepfather became a Christian at our church one Christmas Eve, and he began to see the change in his, in his, fa- in his father, uh, his stepfather, and he, and, he, and he was like open to it, but he just could not believe the Bible. Like, it's just full of fables. Until one day, he heard a series that we were doing at our church called Unique. And one of the messages was on the Bible. And he heard the message on the Bible. The next week he came and sat down in the front row of the church. The message had nothing to do with a direct call to salvation. And he looked at me and he goes, Pastor Tim, I'm ready. You ready for what? I'm ready to get saved. You're ready to get saved? What do you mean? Well, I, you know, I, 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 you, th- that message that was preached about the Bible, I, 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 it, it handled all the objections that I had. It was the thing that was in the way. I'm ready to... And I was able to pray with him and lead him to Christ. That young man became my fourth son-in-law. Because a couple of years later, he caught, my, my daughter caught his eye, I guess you could say. And he grew like a blossoming, you're not supposed to say about a guy, but a blossoming flower. I can't think of anything else. Like a, a palm, I'll tell you what, a, a Naples palm tree in its full bloom. And to this day, he is becoming a mighty man of God. And what got him over the hump was a message that just helped him to understand that the Bible is not some kind of joke. It's the truth. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope, give us strength, help us cope in this world where'er we roam. Ancient words will guide us home. Holy words of our faith handed down to this age came to us through sacrifice. Oh, heed the faithful words of Christ. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Once I had come to understand even just a small list of the obvious irrefutable evidences for the truthfulness of God's word, I remember the little song that I sang as a kid and it had great new power. And it goes like this and I want you to stand with me and we're gonna sing it a cappella. It's very simple but it's profound. Would you all stand as we close? And here is what the song is and I want you to sing it with me. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to sing without lyrics? Okay. I think you know this one. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible... Oh, stop. 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 Ho, ho, wait, wait. Let's start again. And this time when you come through, praise the Lord for his word. Don't let it pass by quickly. Thank him for his word. I won't stop you this time. We'll finish it. Jesus loves me, this I... There's some harmonies out there. 
For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Lord, we thank you that that is true. It's always been true. It was true before we were born. It was true when we were little kids, whether we knew you as Lord and Savior or not. It's true now, and it will always be. Because the grass will fade it will wither and die, but your word will be forever. Even in heaven, as we worship you forever, your word will be inexhaustibly enjoyed forever. We thank you, Lord. Remind us and equip us and prepare us to have conversations with those who need to understand the credibility and the truthfulness of your word that would lead to them coming to know you and spending eternity with you whether it's our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our friends, someone at the, at the grocery store, or someone at school, whatever it may be, help us to be prepared, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Thank you.